First of all, I just want to say um, to each of you um, how thankful I am for you, how grateful I am for each one of you, and for your generous and your uh, grateful hearts. Um, you have been amazing throughout this year, and uh, we would not be able to do what we're doing without you, and so we are so thankful for you. I know just this fall, uh, we put up uh, two big challenges through September and October. We collected special gifts for uh, Lutheran Social Ministry uh, of the Southwest to help with refugees in September. And then in October, we threw a big challenge to volunteer at Feed My Starving Children and to provide money to, to uh, supply food for, for a year for 22 children. Uh, by providing $2,000, and you did that. You provided over that. And then, then we asked you in October, I know we just gave in September to LSS, but they really need help because they have a lot of Afghan refugees coming in uh, towards the end of this year. And so we threw out another challenge and said, would you provide $5,000? We made a commitment with the other three Lutheran churches here in North Scottsdale, Carefree Fountain Hills, that we would each provide $5,000. And you did that. So thank you. Give yourselves a hand. Thank you. So when I look at you, my heart is filled with gratitude. And I, I remember you in my prayers with gratitude. Because you are making such a big difference in the lives of so many people. And the gospel is being carried to people that you would never have imagined could have received the gospel. And so when we take a look at today's reading in Mark, the 13th chapter, it is often referred to as the little apocalypse. <laughs> One of those scary books, right? Like the book of Revelation. And I want you to know that it's really not an apocalypse. Most biblical professors today that have studied this have come to the point that it has some apocalyptic tendencies, but it's not an apocalypse. You see, it has a mixture of things. It has a mixture of warnings for the early church, but it also has words of encouragement. And so, as we look at this reading, this short reading that we gave Lori, right, Lori? <laughs> I don't know where you're sitting there. <laughs> I think the last one I gave her was two chapters long, so she was really grateful to get eight verses. Um, so two weeks ago, in John's Gospel, we learned that it was the resurrection of Lazarus that caused Jesus to be arrested. I don't know if you remember that or not. That's what John talks to us about. It's the resurrection of Lazarus and then Jesus and his disciples. So the resurrection of Lazarus was the last public ministry of Jesus before his arrest in uh, John's Gospel. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's a little different. The last thing that... Jesus does, the last public act that he does in these Gospels is 
um, reference to the temple. So that's not about the resurrection here in Mark. It's about the power and the corruption of the temple. Jesus has challenged the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He's challenged the corruption of these religious leaders. And he has brought healing to the, to the ill. He has cared for the poor. He has fed the hungry. He has brought life to those who thought that they were on death row. He has brought life to those who were living in emotional, spiritual darkness. And with every attempt to bring in the reign of God's kingdom, to bear and reveal the reign of God's kingdom, in every single attempt, Jesus has been challenged. He has been challenged by these very same religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, chief priests, council. The first thing that I want you to look at with me today is a word. And it's a word from our text. And the word is opposite. Now this word can be used for many purposes. Um, He opposed their position or how they became the opposition. Opposite means diametrically different, diametrically opposed to the other side. I feel like we have some experience with this today. You know you're opposite. You know you're opposite very well. You can identify your opposite, and you're very clear about it. And today we could probably safely say that in our world today, in our culture, opposites do not attract. (laughs) There was a day when you could say opposites attract, but I don't think we could say that today. You know who your opposition is, you know who you're opposed to, and you don't hide it. Now that perspective may be helpful in giving us some insight into Jesus in this particular reading from today's text. In verse 3, now this is from the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. We're using the NLT, the New Living Translation. That's what you heard Lori read from. And I'm going to use the NRSV because the NLT missed it. They, well, I'll, I'll talk about it in just a minute. Let's hear what it says in the NRSV. When Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Hear those three words? Opposite the temple. Our NLT misses it. They said, that, well, they tried to clean it up. It says that he sat across from the temple. That misses the whole point of this particular scripture. Because what Mark is telling us is that Jesus just didn't sit across from the temple. He sat opposite from the temple. 
The word that we use is important because it denotes Jesus' final and definitive break with the temple and its old sacrificial system. We just went through the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews elucidates that so clearly for us. That the great high priest, the Messiah, Jesus, came and one of the things that he did that was so important was that he instituted a new sacrifice. His sacrifice. And so the old sacrificial system and its building, the beautiful building, the magnificent building of the temple was no longer necessary. Now we know this word opposite is an important word here because it's used, again, right before this reading in chapter 13 at the very end of chapter 12. In chapter 12, what we have happening is that the scribes have been challenging Jesus on his identity and Jesus is refuting their challenge. And one of the things that he talks about as he challenges the scribes, he says that they rely on their perks of honor and power, their beautiful long robes, having everyone bow to them as they walk through the streets, having the the highest uh, point of honor at the table, at the banquet table. They're so clearly impressed with themselves and with their perks. And yet, he says, they are cheating the very widows to whom they are responsible. They are stealing from the widows. Then he talks about the widow who gave all that she had into the temple treasury. While the others come in with their gifts out of their abundance, he says the widow has given all that she had to live on. And then it says this, that Jesus sat down opposite of the temple treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple. Sometimes I wonder... How many of us would truly be followers of Jesus today if he had been here in our world and if he had brought the same intensity of message to the powers of our day? Jesus is definitely opposed to the corruption of the temple. And he is opposed to its manipulative tactics. He is also opposed to the idea that your temple sacrifice can fully fully offer you the forgiveness of your sins. He is not speaking against the Torah here. 
is not speaking against the law. He's speaking against the system. Now, earlier in Mark, Jesus cursed a fig tree. Let's take a look at that, uh, Mark 11. And uh, beginning at verse 12. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He's human. He's got a bit of a hunger. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to it to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. May no one ever eat your fruit again. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began to plan how to kill him. And then in verse 20, the next morning as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. It was deader than a doornail. Some people often get a little perturbed. Like, how could Jesus be so mean to that fig tree? Why would would you condemn a, a simple little fig tree? And what is interesting here is that something that we often miss is that the the primary symbol for the temple, the natural primary symbol for the temple was the fig tree. So when he condemned the fig tree, he condemned it for not bearing fruit. And it died. In verse 2, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. Yes, look at those great buildings. This is right after the disciples have admired the magnificent buildings. Yes, look at those great buildings but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. For Jesus, opposition is an important understanding of who he is and what he stands for. But opposition from Jesus does not lead to violence. It does not lead to death. It does not lead to destruction. It simply means that you are opposed to it because it is not a source of life. For today or for eternity. Jesus is opposed to the temple and he predicts that it will be destroyed A little later in Mark, he will be challenged, he will be accused, and they will convict him on false accusations 
the accusation, the false accusations that are made is this. We heard him say that he would destroy the temple and in three days rebuild it not made with human hands. The false accusation is this. Jesus never, never said he would destroy the temple. What he did was he foretold the destruction of the temple, which would happen a generation later in 70 AD after the Jewish revolt, which began in 66 AD, when Nero finally had his fill of the Jews, and he went in and he wiped out not only the temple, but the whole city of Jerusalem. And it is said not one stone was left standing upon another stone. Opposition for the purpose of life. Opposition to bring life the opposite of death and darkness. The second thing I want to look at with you today is another word, birth pangs. Now Jesus describes all of these things that will take place, both internally and externally. The first is internal threats. Many will come from within and they will come in Jesus' name. They will even, some of them will even claim to be the Messiah. They are false messiahs, but they will come and they will draw many people to them. These are false messiahs. In the book of Acts, in the fifth chapter, there's um, a report of the apostles who have been preaching in Jesus' name and they've been at the temple preaching, and they're arrested by the Sanhedrin, by the council, and they are thrown into prison. They are imprisoned, and um, during the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord comes and releases them from prison. And um, the council doesn't know what to make of it the next morning. They are very frustrated, and they are very irritated, and they want to put these apostles that they have arrested, they want to put them to death. They want to kill them, like they did Jesus. And they receive some advice from one of their members, a wise rabbi, Gamaliel, teacher of the law, when he tells them this in verse 34. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside to the council chambers for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, Men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do these, to these men. Some time ago there was that fellow Thutis, who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. So what Gamaliel is saying is, that Jesus, now Thutis came after Jesus, but he is using Thutis as an example. Jesus has been put to death. It's just going to take some time. This whole group will be scattered around and they'll forget all about Jesus if you 
begin to kill all of his followers, his implication here is, then you will begin to breathe new life into the group. So just let them be, let them go, and they will eventually die down and become powerless. There are many false messiahs during this time. Thutis was one of them. And Gamaliel convinces the council that Jesus was like all the rest, that his followers would soon scatter. But what this points out to us is that there are threats to discipleship that come from every quarter. We often think threats to our discipleship come from outside, but they also come from inside, internally. And there's only one Christ, even though there are many who claim to be him, there's only one Christ, and we find him in Scripture. And I'm sorry to say we don't find him on television or social media. So if you're looking there for him, you're going to be disappointed. But you'll find him here, in the Word. There is one Christ. And then he talks about the external threats. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be earthquakes and famines. My goodness, it does kind of feel like that some days, doesn't it? It's, it's not the first time. It's probably uh, more than a handful of times that I've had friends who have confided in me, Steve, do you think this is the end? I mean, the year has been so crazy, has it not? That many of us have thought maybe this is the end. We should get prepared. We should keep our lamps burning, right? (laughs) We should keep watch. And this is the good news. Is that even though we face these internal and external threats, they're not the end. They are the birth pangs. Now, I've never delivered a baby, so I don't really have any idea about birth pangs. But I have observed my wife, who has delivered three babies. And one of the things that I've noticed is that the closer to the delivery, the closer she gets to that new life, the more intense the pain becomes. And the more frequent they are. And so we shouldn't be fearful of these threats. We should just recognize that, hey, God is beginning to do something really important here. God is doing something really big. God is bringing new life. Even in the midst of all the death that we've seen, even in the midst of all the darkness, God is bringing new life. He is birthing something new, a new creation. This is not the end, friends. This is the beginning. And it is exciting to be at this point. Intense, yes. Challenging, yes. But exciting. Last week we heard from Boris how he and Fernanda and their team are making such a huge impact Not with just the girls that they are caring for, which are now 14 and they hope to go to 32 within the next year, but also the impact in the community. In their neighborhood, they had over 400 families that were starving, that had no food, no jobs, because in Ecuador, everything shut down. 
with the virus. Everything shut down. So they had no savings. They had, all they had was what they could make. And then when they couldn't work, they had nothing. And so through your gifts and the gifts of so many others, they were able to go out and buy food for several months for 400 families. They are making an impact. They are bringing the good news to people that have not heard the good news of Jesus. This morning you heard Tom and Cynthia and Leah talk about the good news that they're bringing to families. You see, we are birthing new ministries. We are birthing discipleship. And it is an exciting time. Discipleship means not just growing in, and we're thankful that that happens, but discipleship is also growing out. How are we going to continue to take this beautiful news that we have heard, this good news, how are we going to continue to take it out and relate to people so we can develop relationships and friendships So that they might even ask us. You know, one of the great things about evangelism is that when you do it right, you don't have to tell people. They ask you. To be asked, what is it that you have that is so life-giving? What is it that gives you such a different perspective on life? Would you tell me? Discipleship, growing out the church. So when you give your offerings, you're giving for those purposes. That we can grow the church in and out. The third thing I want to talk to you about today is the word sign. It's a big word in this chapter. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. I don't know if you remember in the beginning of Mark, these were the first four disciples Now, at the end of his public ministry, Jesus is met by his four first disciples. And so they come up to Jesus, and and they're curious. You know, he's been talking to them about these things. And um, so they, they ask him this, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? What's the sign? Show us the sign, Jesus. Tell us what sign you're going to use. Well, in John's gospel, we hear a lot about Jesus' signs, his miracles. But in Mark's gospel, we don't hear as much about the signs. We hear about the miracles. And so what we are discovering in Mark's gospel is that signs have a particular purpose, that signs are a gift that come from God to reveal the kingdom of God. If you go and demand a sign, ask for a sign, Jesus is not really excited about that. You might be asking me, well, how do you know that? I mean, well, I know that three times the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign, and finally in chapter 8, he says, enough. You're not getting any signs. You don't even, you're, you're trying to test me. You're not really even interested in the kingdom of God. You see, 
When you're interested in the kingdom of God, you rejoice in the signs. You don't ask for them. God sends signs to his children, to you and to me as a gift. God sends us signs to guide us in our lives of discipleship. What Jesus is sharing with his disciples is that the reign of the temple and the sacrificial system is soon coming to an end. But it's not coming to an end because they're going to destroy it. It's coming to an end because Jesus is going to present himself as the final sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice to take away the sins of the world, to take away your sins and my sins, not just the sins that we've done, not just the sins that we're doing, but the sins that we will do in the future. Jesus Christ came and offered himself as the great lamb in order to provide for us the assurance that our sins are forgiven once and for all and that we have life eternal. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Not by Jesus, not by the Christians, by the group that they had power shared with for years, the Romans. The fall of Jerusalem corresponded with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And if you have any interest in that, all you need to do is to take a look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts lays it out for us how the kingdom of God began to be revealed. And even in these uncertain times, I know one thing. This is not the end. This is the beginning. And God is creating something new. And I am just so grateful to be able to be a part of it. Let us give thanks to God. Amen.